Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Give Me the Cure from Fugazi's first 1988 EP is a person whose name is synonymous with local activism in Washington, D.C. He co-founded Positive Force D.C. and the We Are Family Senior Outreach Network, and he's the author or co-author of a few books, the most relevant to this podcast probably being Dance of Days, Two Decades of Punk in the Nation's Capital. Mark Anderson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm, I'm doing reasonably well and glad to be here. We're recording this a bit in advance of when it's going to come out. We're speaking on November 1st, just a couple of days before Election Day 2020. Can I just ask to start things off in a general sense? What's on your mind right now? Well, I mean, it's a it's a historic crossroads for this country and alas for the world, given how powerful this country is. Um, uh, I'm old enough to remember Richard Nixon defeating Hubert Humphrey in 1968, which was a disastrous outcome. And 1968 was a tumultuous year. Um, I'm hoping that uh, the year 2020, which again has been a, a tumultuous year, uh, that uh, we're going to write a happier ending uh, in this presidential election um, uh, because we have to. Um, so much hangs in the balance. Uh. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Absolutely. I'm joining you in all those hopes. And, uh, you know, speaking to listeners in the future, um, how are you guys doing? I hope things went well. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, right now we're very nervous. So uh, yeah, we got the jitters. Um, but, you know, I get the sense no matter what happens, Mark, your your work has gone on through conservative administrations, through uh, liberal administrations, such as they are. I'm sure just for you, the work will continue. And I wanted to talk a little about that, especially, you know, in relation with Fugazi. Your organization, uh, Positive Force DC, did many shows sort of raising awareness about various causes. And Fugazi in particular was notable for working with you pretty closely, doing a lot of shows with you, bringing awareness to you. How do you remember how you first came to know and work with the guys in Fugazi? I'm sure um, I was had moved to Montana from Montana to Washington D.C. in the summer of 1984, which was a, uh, a pretty dreary moment to move to the D.C. punk scene uh, or enter it. Um, but it turned out to be an auspicious point um, because something uh, the, the the scene was kind of in the doldrums. Um, uh, on a nosedive, but uh, there was something cooking, um, that being Revolution Summer and uh, a whole bunch of bands, most significantly Rites of Spring. Um, and uh, so big change was in the air, uh, although you know no one knew it at that moment. Uh, that is how life is. That's how history is made. You don't really know until after the fact and you're looking back and you say oh my gosh that was a totally significant crossroads for my life and for so many others um but that's what it was and so uh i first saw right to spring in the summer of 85 and it was uh, an extraordinary experience i won't try to talk about it 
right now other than to say that it changed my life profoundly. Um, and of course, Guy Pachotto and Brendan Canty were in that band, of, you know, the single most important band in this new uh, generation of reinvented DC punk. Uh, so that's where I first began to know of them. I had already encountered Ian Mackay um, because he um, had come to some shows that I had gone to earlier uh, that year. Um, and uh, we had talked briefly um, about the creation of Positive Force um, and uh, our first events. And uh, so it's really just out of the fact that we were part of the same fairly small community approaching it from the same sort of intellectual and, and soul space um, that we naturally gravitated towards uh, working together. Um, my first work with directly with Ian was in uh, the band Embrace. They played the benefit show uh, for Positive Force uh, to raise money to help put on uh, something called the Alternatives Festival. That's in October of 1985. Um, uh, I had gotten to know Ian, I mean, Guy and Brendan um, through seeing Rites of Spring. And the first time that I worked directly with them was putting on the very first show that uh, One Last Wish did in uh, 1986, the summer of 1986. Joe Lally was someone who was around during that time, but I didn't actually get to know Joe until after he was already playing with um, with Ian in, in what would become Fugazi. Um, I had seen him. I, he was around the Beefeater camp, Beefeater being another critically important Revolution summer band. He was a dear friend of the band and... Uh, kind of, you know, bands of that ilk, you know, you know, underground punk bands don't really have roadies as such, but he was a friend who went with the band and, and helped move equipment and, and support the band, uh, while they were on tour. Um, and, uh, and, and his experience with the band Beefeater, uh, revolutionized his life. Um, so, uh, again, it's all, we're, all part of the same relatively small community struggling for some of the same things and kind of operating on the same wavelength. Um, so through the fact that they were doing musical projects and I was working with, uh, as a volunteer with positive force, which of course is not my organization, but an organization that I helped found and that I participated in and still do to this day. Um, uh, and, uh, they were playing music that had meaning and passion and, and a connection to what was happening in the world. And so, uh, it was only a natural thing that, um, we would work together, uh, me and other people in positive force helping to provide sort of that infrastructure to put on shows that had, uh, a meaning to them beyond simple entertainment, um, anytime any of these bands played, of course, there was a meaning beyond simple entertainment. But what helped was when you connected with a political group like Positive Force, 
who was in the same spiritual artistic place, basically, then you could do so much uh, because you could be raising more awareness with the show. You could be raising money, you know, actually providing fuel for these groups doing important work on the front lines of uh, any number of uh, critical fights for social justice. And so that's, uh, that's how I got to know them and how we became, uh, you know, essentially uh, comrades in the same struggle. Yeah, and I must say, as somebody who went to at least one Positive Force um, Fugazi show, it's it's not just the case that it, you were an activist group who sort of were seizing on this great opportunity of a Fugazi show or punk shows to to sort of catch the ear of possible you know would be contributors to various causes, but it's also that like you, it's giving a gift to to people who are at these shows because. You know, Fugazi is a kind of band that really gets people to care about certain things. They make people feel like they want to be involved. And so people could go to their show and get that feeling and then be sort of like, oh, okay, what now? And that feeling sort of dissipates. Or an organization like Positive Force can channel that into something. You guys were there with like literature and you you would have, you know, specific action items that people who were interested uh, in in this and inspired by Fugazi, it, it yeah as I say it's it was sort of a gift to uh, to us so thank you for that yeah well I mean it's a gift to myself uh, you know first and foremost in a sense because number one I had been inspired to believe in myself and to strive for something broader than kind of the initial context that I grew up in and kind of in the rural working class of northeastern Montana, I was inspired to become an activist, to become an actual human being with a a vision for my life uh, from punk rock music. And so by the time Positive Force is coming around, I'm trying to give some of that gift back to people. But at the same time, hearing these bands, working with them, my gosh, what a gift. Um, and, And that's the thing is like, we're working together on something. They were donating their time I was donating my time, uh, so were the other volunteers with Positive Force. It was a way for us to say, you know, no matter what the, 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 the show was about, it's about saying that something in this life is more important than money. And, and fundamentally, that's other human beings and, and our world uh, and all of, you know, the animals and other extraordinarily precious living things in that world. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I am so grateful, uh, and so lucky, you know, because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, I, you know, I did put myself on the line to some degree, but uh, my gosh, uh, the, the payback from my point of view is, you know, extraordinary, precious beyond, the ability of words to express. Do you have any idea how many Fugazi shows Positive Force organized over the years? Well, certainly dozens. It was, that's actually a question that occurred to me. I was trying to figure out how many Fugazi shows I would have seen, and then you know, a significant portion of those, like three-quarters of those I would have seen, I had a, at least a hand in organizing. Um, so, I mean, I... My gosh, it's probably close to a hundred, um, because they basically they starting in the summer of nineteen 
89, every single show they did or any performance they did in the Washington, D.C. area was either a benefit concert, a free concert, or a protest. And, uh, you know, Positive Force and, and myself had a hand in, in all of those. We were partners uh, working on, you know, the same the same work. Now, you know, admittedly from somewhat different slants, um, they're a band, they're first and foremost a band. They would always say that. Um, and so, you know, they're there about, you know, realizing that vision, that musical artistic vision that's in their head. Whereas I or other members of Positive Force are there primarily as activists, but activists who clearly are, are deeply inspired, um, by by music um and uh so uh, it, it was a very natural organic kind of process and and having said that also a, a bit miraculous definitely are, are are there like one or two concerts that you would pick out in your mind as the most memorable ones i think for a lot of people uh, at least i would say a lot of people have seen the footage for example of the um the, the show they did in, in D.C. in the colds with the There Will Be Two Wars banner that was sort of about sure. uh, homelessness and about the, uh, uh, the Operation Desert Storm. Any any stick out in your mind like that? Well, I mean, obviously that one sticks out. It's, it's just an extraordinary uh, day. Um, and there was so much work that went into it. Uh, you know, I could I could talk to you for the next week probably about all of the backstory <laughs> there, um, but it was an extraordinary uh, event and an extraordinary performance in very extraordinary circumstances, and and is terribly meaningful to me and I know to the band as as well. Um, I also particularly would remember a show they did at DC Space. I think it was was it October sixteenth. 1987 it was the show the first show that Guy sang a song he sang break in um at that show and it was this very small show and and they had written so many great songs and i mean it's actually crazy to think about because this is only like a month and a half after their very first show but you could really tell that something was coming together there and i i have you know, extraordinary memories of, of seeing that show and just kind of walking around in a daze afterward, hugging my friends who were also there. And uh, uh, so that that is very particularly meaningful to me, as well as another show that's gotten a lot of uh, a lot of attention in different documentaries and so forth, which is the homeless benefit that they did at Wilson Center. Uh, December 29th, 1988. Um, that was just, that was at that moment that that energy that I had felt in 1986, you know, I, I just, again, it seems so crazy that this had all happened in the space of just over a year, um, that it all came together. Um, you know, and the performance was so extraordinary. The turnout was so extraordinary The the energy in the air, um, uh, it was, it is truly one of the greatest live events I've ever attended in, in my life. Never mind rock concert. You know, it's, it's really, uh, an incredible, an incredible show. So I, I, those three stick out, but, um, you know, with Fugazi, every time he saw them, uh, there was something, something there. 
um, from the very first show to, you know, their very last show at Fort Reno in 2000, and the very last show in D.C. Um, uh, in 2002. Um, so, yeah. Again, yeah. I, I will I will go on forever if if I start. So I, I think I'll leave it there. Okay. Yeah. Live performances uh, that are notable in some way are have definitely been a focus of this show, and I'll I'll put links up uh, in the show notes to the ones that you mentioned. Uh, you you do have a great memory for dates. That that one you mentioned was indeed um, October sixteenth, nineteen eighty seven, the first time that Guy um, introduced uh, his vocals with break in. Although the funny thing is that the vocals, you couldn't hear them at all. I don't know, like the mic was off to begin with. <laughs> and then, but you could, I mean, I guess you could hear them a little bit because you were literally, like I was literally within 10 feet of him while he's singing. And it was just, uh, I mean, again, it's just an extraordinary moment. Um, but uh, yeah, if you go back, and I know tapes exist of the show. You'll, you will have a hard time picking out his you know his vocal there because there was an issue with the mic, I recall. I think people were surprised. The sound person was surprised <laughs> that he was singing. Um, so maybe they were just low, and then he turned them up. But anyway, but yeah, incredible. Well, speaking of their live performances, the song that we're talking about today is Give Me the Cure. Uh, it is actually one of their... It's in their top 20, the Fugazi top 20, like most frequently played live songs of their career. I have it at number 13, although there is a little bit of data missing, so can't be exactly sure. Uh, but it's definitely one that they broke out quite a lot. They debuted it live uh, March 30th, 1988. And it is is notably um, a song about AIDS. Some people have speculated, you know, it's it's not in the lyrics explicitly about AIDS, but the band did speak to that on occasion. So I have a quote here. Um, April 9th, 1988, they performed it. Ian Mackay said to introduce it, the subject is AIDS. It's a, it's a disease that we'll all be faced with if we don't get our shit together and stop treating it like some kind of leper colony bullshit. So uh, hat tip to uh, Carl Goldspink uh, on Facebook for pointing out that show in particular. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that's the first time I saw it. I, I oh, you were the there. Song. Yeah, I was there. That's fantastic. So, I mean, so Fugazi not only were a band that was you know strongly activist, but uh, particularly AIDS was a a sort of pet cause for them. They did several benefit shows for, among others, the Whitman Walker Clinic, which had it was one of the early leaders in the fight against AIDS. They had a special HIV/AIDS expertise. Um, they also did benefits for uh, the Anti-AIDS Political Coalition Act Up and various other related causes. Um, so, and, and it's great to have somebody to talk to like you who was there at that moment when they first started playing this. Because, uh, so as I've said on the podcast before, I mean, the first song that we talked about was 23 Beats Off, which, which is also uh, about HIV. And, you know, I mentioned I was born in 1982. So... I, so I, I was old enough to, you know, by the end of their career, I, I was able to, you know, see Fugazi live several times. But at the time when AIDS was sort of panicking America and it, it was this mysterious and terrifying thing, I was I was really too young to be cognizant of of all that that meant and to feel the fear that I'm sure a lot of people felt at the time. Do, do you have any remarks about what it was like to to sort of face that down as it was rearing its head? 
well, it was it was terrifying because there was no cure. There, you know, if you got AIDS, you died, um, and you died in this horrible, um, lingering, uh, excruciating way. Um, and and I think what was most outrageous at that time, again speaking for myself, but I think also speaking for you know to a fair degree for the members of the band who were my friends and we were working on this stuff together at the time is and you get it in what what ian is saying there like this leper colony bullshit it's like if you got aids you were outside of polite society and that's how it was at that time it was seen as the gay disease it was the junkie disease you know you know or you were dirty somehow and so um, not only did you have to live with the fact that this disease inevitably was going to kill you in this horrible way, you felt like a leper, like you were ostracized from, from, from the world. Um, and, you know, literally, um, the families would turn away from their, from their children over this. Um, and, and. Um, and Ronald Reagan and his administration were terrible on this. Again, there was like this moral judgment. You only get AIDS if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. That was their, uh, you know, their, essentially their judgment, you know. And yes, there, clearly as we began to learn, we began to understand there were risky behaviors that everyone should uh, avoid or take precautions. You know, not using IV drugs, you know, of course, that's an obvious thing to avoid in general. Um, but also if you are already addicted, then don't share your needles, you know, use, use bleach if you have to reuse them. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're gay, if you're having, uh, sex, then you've got to be protected. And ultimately everybody has to be protected because of course, one of the terrible things was that it's changed to some degree, um, uh, you know, there has been a significant change on this level, but so many, uh, gay people were in the closet at that time. Uh, you know, they, maybe they were gay or lesbian, or maybe they were bisexual and they weren't allowing themselves to know the truth of their sexuality and, um, people didn't know. And so clearly Having sex with anyone that wasn't protected could bring you AIDS. And in fact, you know, it could be passed through blood transfusions and all these different ways. There are some parallels to what we're facing right now um, in, in the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. And then there are some very different aspects to it. But at the time, um, it was frightening and... Um, heart-wrenching because the first thing that would happen is you would get terribly sick, and the second thing is that you often would be abandoned by the people you thought loved you. Um, and we were determined that this would not stand, that you know we would stand up for what the truth was, which is people have gotten this terrible disease Wherever it came from, you know, we need to be there for people who are suffering like this. And then, you know, we all want to learn. And, you know, eventually, 
things shifted more was learned about it. You learned how to protect yourself. Um, there were uh, therapeutic measures that could at least delay death and sometimes hold it in suspended animation to the point now where these drug cocktails can, you know, it's no longer a death sentence, but at the time it was a death sentence. And, uh, uh, you know, the Reagan administration and its allies bear extraordinary uh, responsibility for the horrible way they handled this. Um, Reagan only got shocked out of his um, ignorant denialism by um, Rock Hudson's death, um, because mm-hmm. Rock Hudson, of course, was a friend of Reagan's from his Hollywood years. And, you know, for people on the outside, Rock Hudson was the you know, the epitome of the macho leading man, um, you know, that every every woman wanted and every man wanted to be like. And, and of course, he was a gay man. Um, and for people around him, they knew that, but most of America didn't. And all of a sudden, when this matinee idol um, was stricken and, and they saw what it did to him, you know, um, uh, it did touch Reagan and uh, and 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 I think it did help to start change, changing attitudes. Of course, by that time, you know, tens of thousands are dead or dying. Yeah. To give listeners some context, health officials first became aware of AIDS in 1981. But uh, it seems that, according to my research, Ronald Reagan didn't even mention AIDS in public until January 1986, which yes. is a little shocking. Yeah. There's. The- there's some to put it in perspective, he didn't use the word AIDS in public until you were well on the way to losing as many Americans to AIDS as were killed in the Vietnam War. And it's one of the great failures of his administration. And I say that knowing full well that he had many great failures, but this was one that... Uh, that lingers, um, or at least it should, in terms of, of the shame it should bring upon his name. Not only that, there's there's some real shocking audio out there. I bet this is something that you've heard before. Um, recorded audio from a press conference in 1982 between Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, and members of the media pool. And, you know, they're, they're asking about HIV AIDS, um, what the administration's response is, if they're aware of it. And they're ba- basically joking around about it because, yeah, it's clear to these people being gay is is a punchline. And yeah. it's the, the callousness in, um, yeah, listening to them joke about it is uh, pretty shocking. It's known as gay plague. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wondered if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? No, you, I don't. you didn't answer my question. Well, I just wondered, How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. You, you, what, does the president, we, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been Nobody any. There's been no oh, personal experience here, Lester. No, I mean, I thought you were keeping. Doctor, I checked thoroughly with Doctor Ruge this morning, and he's had no uh, <laughs> no patients he, he suffered from AIDS or whatever the it is. Doesn't have gay plague. Is that what you're saying or what? No, didn't say that. Didn't say that. I thought I heard you on the State Department over there. When you stay over there. <laughs> 
Because I love you, Larry. Oh, I see. Well, I'm, let's don't put it in those terms, Lester. <laughs> yeah. So that's really what we're, you know, the, 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 the atmosphere, even in the late 80s, you know, it's shifted some from earlier, but it's still pretty prevalent. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, what I think Guy is trying to um, make real. In, in the song yeah the that's, suffering, they, that is human suffering you know yeah it's part of the power of art uh, and something that fugazi did from time to time is you know it can dramatize situations get people to care about them even if it's not a situation that they have been in or will be in even it basically gets you to care about other people this is part of the power of you know great films great art it's interesting i think also that on the on the record this song is followed by the song suggestion which kind of does the same thing you know it sort of tries to bring a male audience into a, a female point of view but yeah so give me the cure Guy is sort of dramatizing the point of view of a young person uh, to me it like this speaks particularly to a young person who's suddenly facing death which is it's like it's a crazy situation to think about you know in the course of a normal life i think as you grow old you just sort of gradually become more and more accustomed to the idea that that uh, of your mortality basically that someday you'll die this is a natural thing it's something that everybody goes through but to suddenly be young and have this disease that you know as you said is a death sentence um that's an insane situation and it's sort of i think what gee is really bringing to, to focus here and in typical Guy fashion the way he describes it is very sort of tactile and body focused these lines like sucked on the dying licked the side of dying before he's sort of getting at how how viscerally how suddenly uh he's uh this character is coming face to face with mortality which is very fascinating you know and it's very moving i remember being riveted when i when i saw him do it because of course, all this backstory that we're discussing um, is coming out right there. And, and you know, that show um, was an AIDS benefit for Whitman Walker Clinic, uh, the April 9th show um, in uh, just outside the D.C. line um, in Maryland. And uh, uh, I mean, the experience of seeing Guy sing that song live it was interesting because most of my memories of Fugazi are from live performance. Um, and um, as powerful as their records are, and their records are very powerful, it, it can't possibly match what it was like to hear them do it live, especially if you were able to be in, you know, in a small enough circumstance where, uh, where the energy from the stage um, is, is coming, you know, so directly to you and then in principle you're returning it um in this extraordinary again almost miraculous kind of feedback loop but um I, when Guy sang the song he inhabited the song it was not he was not singing about something he was experiencing it he was bringing it to life that's that's the degree of of connection he had to to the song and that's of course why you know rights of spring was so great um and that's why he has been such a compelling artist it's it's also a a great 
cross to bear in certain ways because uh, you know it is it is exhausting to to inhabit, especially a song like that, which is you know the song is deep. It is very very painful. Um, there is there is a certain desperate hope in it, no doubt. It's very alive song. It's a song about dying, but it is very much alive. Um, but you know, to be able to bring yourself to a song like that night after night um, is is an act of extraordinary artistic concentration and um, soul power. I don't know how else to describe it. And and certainly from that first first time that I saw it um, to many other times I saw it, uh, it, it was it was it was pretty staggering in in its power. Um, I will say that you know the the studio version, um, I mean, is perfectly, you know, perfectly fine. But the 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 if you were lucky enough to be there, and you know, that's really what it was mostly. If you were lucky enough, you I was born at the right time. I was in the right place. Happened to come into friendship with these particular folks and work together with them. Then, uh, you know, it really it really could. You could walk away from a performance like that, a changed person, a, a better person, I would say. That The thing you said, desperate hope, that's such an interesting way to put it. Yeah, you're right. The, this, the refrain, give me the shot, give me the pill, give me the cure, it's, um, I, it strikes me that one of, the, one of the various terrible things about being HIV's positive, having AIDS at that time is like you you sort of you must have known eventually probably pretty soon there will be if not a cure at least some sort of treatment that will keep me alive but it but it will probably be too late for me uh the based based on the progress of the disease and this the slowly turning wheels of medical research it's like yeah just just knowing that not only are you dying but that if you just had this disease a few years later 10 years later uh you might you might not die, and that's absolutely yeah. No, and it was it was staggering the toll that it took, um, and uh, um, you know, yeah, I, I I I can't do it justice with words. It is. I'm glad that we're spending time on context because now if someone's HIV positive, it's it's an inconvenience um, for sure, and and you know, there if you don't do what you must do to prevent the progress of the disease you will still die from it but it is it is not a a death sentence i mean i know you know people would break down in tears after getting a, a positive test because they're like my life is over yeah um and and again it's i feel like i fear i'm being a broken record here but the the actual agony of fighting such a terrible disease is one thing, um, but then the the ostracization, the the banishing of people, making them feel somehow unclean or bad or evil because they have the disease is that's a level of of cruelty which you know should never exist. Um, yeah, and uh, also I I think it. <laughs> We should point out, you know, we're living today in, in a much different time where homosexuality is far more accepted. Um, but 
I mean, it's it's kind of a double whammy at the time because, I mean, a positive AIDS prognosis, you know, not only are you treated like a leper because of the disease, but it, it outs you as gay, more or less. It was such a strongly gay-associated disease. Um, apparently, I was doing a little research that presented a problem with, like, public screening efforts. You know, people were worried that confidentiality might be broken and they would face discrimination and fully legal at the time discrimination as a consequence of people learning uh about their homosexuality um not to mention or that that they had the disease because people were scared people like oh oh my gosh maybe you you just get it by being close to someone um um i mean like i remember i can't remember was it Ryan White? But I remember one, maybe not Ryan White, that may have come later, but I remember the story of this child, you know, is literally like an elementary school child who contracts the disease because he had a blood transfusion. And we didn't know at this time. But, you know, I just remember the images of him, like, set off away from all of the other kids. And, you know, I'm, what a weight to carry if you're a, it was a terrible weight for anyone, but for a kid, I mean, and, but yeah, no, and that's, that's the thing that is, that is why Ian said what he said, um, because he wanted it to be clear that we didn't buy those lies. People are people. And if a person is sick and suffering and, and yes, dying, the proper response is compassion. Um, you know, doing whatever you can to help them, uh, you know, the medical care and, you know, emotional support, um, not, you know, judgment. Uh, and uh, uh, having said that, I think one of the things I, I, I knowing Guy, I would think he would not, you know, he would appreciate that you we're giving context here, but he always wanted his songs, which of course he wrote, uh, you know, for him in that moment, they're written about something very personal, very specific, but he also likes to write in a way where it's open to interpretation, um, where people can take it as something from it that maybe he didn't initially mean. And so at that point in time, Ian is a little bit more like, sort of this is what the song is about where Guy is more like well it might be about that but it might be about a lot of things um you know what do you think it's about um and he's very careful to not allow his songs to be easily pigeonholed um which of course is in the Fugazi spirit in general um they don't want to be summed up and you know neatly filed away in a box somewhere they want to challenge people, and they want to challenge themselves too, and challenge each other. You know, speaking of the folks in the band, because they're all really smart, really passionate, really creative and gifted people, and uh, you know that's part of the power of the band that those four people come together and 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 stay together um, and push each other and grow together, um, and uh, so. You know, for anybody who's listening in, you know, listen to the song and and find what you find there. Um, I certainly, I certainly, as I said, see parallels to our current moment 
um, because we again are faced with this uh, plague, if you will, and um, it's you know killing. I mean, hundreds of thousands in our country and millions across the world. Um, and we do not have a cure right now. We have some things you can do to try to stay safe. They've got increasingly got therapies that can help slow the progress of the disease or make it less lethal, perhaps, in, in different people. But, my gosh, it is, you know, again, in a situation of desperate hope. We as a society have been kind of trapped in this alternative reality, this twilight zone for much of a year now. Um, and, and part of that is because the reality is that this disease is a terrible new innovation that we have not yet figured out how to fight, um, at least in definitive ways. Um, part of it is the utter and, um, utterly reprehensible, incompetent, and outright deceitful, um, shameful behavior of our leaders. And I will say that, you know, I, I have some pretty harsh words for Ronald Reagan around AIDS, as, as well as many other issues. But the, the, the failure, the epic, blind, arrogant, intentionally... Um, unhelpful behavior of Donald Trump is on a whole nother level. I mean, this, the, the failure that he has shown in this moment is arguably the single most egregious failure of leadership by any American president ever. And I say that knowing my history and, you know, knowing you know, for example, George W. Bush with a catastrophic error of invading Iraq, um, or you know, we can go down the line of different, you know, things that you know presidents did. Obviously, Nixon got himself; he would have been impeached, but he resigned first. But you know, what we're seeing right now is of a different caliber altogether, um, and 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 beyond my ability to express forcefully enough in words. Um, and so, you know, part of the cure, quite frankly, is uh, at this specific moment is the change in leadership. It just has to happen, um, you know. And it will happen, I have no doubt, whether it happens in three days or, you know, 30 years, I don't know, but... Um, but America is at a historic turning point. Uh, either we're going to go forward into the future, and I would say a better future, where America's promise is more fully realized, um, uh, you know, of liberty and justice for all, those simple words that most of us grew up saying all, over and over again, but, you know, are, are, are ultimately a revolutionary calling, you know. Either we're going to move towards uh, realizing those words, or we're going to build ourselves a prison camp and call it a country. Um, and I think Trump is more than willing to build a prison camp. Uh, that may sound, you know, that may sound uh, over the top. The man is a would-be dictator. That is, that is the only way you can understand how he's approached this office 
and uh, he must be defeated. Um, he will be, I, I have uh, no doubt, because I believe not just in the American people, but the power of people in general to to overturn oppression. Um, but I am I am hoping that it will happen sooner rather than later, because even four years of this man's egregious dereliction of duty and absolutely pathologically dishonest, morally bankrupt rule is a, a disaster for this country. Um, more, I even hate to think about it. That's uh, Consider Me co-signed on everything you said. Great to hear some eloquent uh, takedowns of Donald Trump's complete failure and <laughs> completely predictable in my view. Although, this, yeah, as you say, this in this particular case, it's almost un- unbelievable um, that he would fail like this. I don't personally see what is to be gained by this seemingly willful turning away from the facts in this case. But um, yeah, uh, logic fails me. Yeah, that's our hope, honestly, at this point. You know, in any rational universe, the way he's approaching this right now will guarantee his political defeat in three days. Um, uh, the, the question is, are we living in that rational universe? And you know, the anger, the pain, the ugliness, the poison that is also part of the American experiment, um, uh, you know, is that is that more powerful right now than that more hopeful, uh, inclusive, uh, you know, self-challenging vision? Uh, in the end, I don't believe that it is, but my gosh, I, I, I hope it's, I hope we defeat him sooner rather than later and and you know it's not like beating him solves the problem no. you know there's still that poison there we have to be the antidote to that poison we have to heal all these wounds he is he is using in these utterly irresponsible self-serving ways to advance his own uh, you know self-aggrandizement basically um but at least we will have a chance to focus on what really needs to be done Rather than fighting battles that, you know, should have been, you know, dead and gone, you know, 50 years ago, for sure, but even 100 years ago, um, because I think the actual moment that we're in right now, what it most reflects, possibly, is um, the, the era known as Reconstruction, where this terrible war has been won, the Civil War, some people call it the Second American Revolution, and and people busily put themselves to work to actually realize the 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 promise of a, a, a country that is freed from slavery, um, only to uh, fail and to have the forces of backlash and reaction take over and see a century of legal oppression, that being segregation, Jim Crow, descend upon the country. Um, it is possible that that could happen again. Um, I. I hope not, and I'm fighting for it not to be, but that is, and I promise I will change subject now, but (laughs) that is the drama we are facing at this moment, and indeed, we desperately need a cure on a number of levels. Yeah, I mean, before changing topic completely, I did want to ask you, I was thinking about this song also, of course, COVID-19 came to mind uh, in terms of, you know, right now we have a situation where 
the whole world is palpably yearning for a cure in much the same way that this song kind of expresses for yearning for a cure for AIDS. And at first I was thinking, well, a key difference is that AIDS, really primarily a a huge problem with it is that it, it affected marginalized communities. But then I thought, well, and maybe this is a good question for you because you work closely with senior citizens. Do you think that we would be taking COVID-19 more seriously if it wasn't predominantly dangerous to senior citizens who are themselves like a marginalized community um, in some ways? Well, I think I think the answer is uh, that always the pain of this sort of situation is particularly visited upon the most vulnerable. Um, and, uh, in this case, you know, obviously that's seniors, but not just seniors, low income seniors, uh, non-white seniors, um, seniors with underlying health conditions, which let us recall, this is a political issue because one of the great victories of Obamacare, you know, the Affordable Care Act was the coverage of pre-existing conditions. And of course the, the, the liar in the White House says, oh, of course we'll protect those. But they never they never put forward a plan to do this. They just, you know, as they're fighting it all the way to the Supreme Court to destroy this law that, you know, gives medical care, desperately needed life or death medical care to millions, tens of millions of people. They're, they're claiming that somehow they're going to uh, protect pre-existing, you know, people with pre-existing conditions. They never have. They never will. They care more about money than people, and that is the essential problem. And now, unfortunately, unfortunately, the reality is that in our society, some people matter more than others, and you can kind of tell who it is. Um, obviously, if uh, if if this disease, um, coronavirus, COVID, um, if there weren't I mean, for example, Trump is trumpeting how he got COVID and it wasn't so bad. My God, they spent a million bucks treating this guy. He had the best care anyone could get in anywhere in the world. All paid for by whom? By our government. You know, he's, he rails against socialized medicine. He is a recipient of that, that precisely in ways that other people can't even hope to get. So, yeah, of course. If if something affects the people with the power, they will respond um, more quickly, more viscerally, and more effectively. If it if it particularly affects people who are on the margins, they don't care. I'm I'm sorry to say that, um, but that that tends to be the the reality of the world that we live in. Yeah, and I think your comments about Rock Hudson's case making this real to. Ronald Reagan is borne out. I'm far from the first person to comment on. It seems like a an endemic part of the conservative mindset is to only care about an issue or a kind of person once one of those people is somebody that you care personally very closely about, and then it suddenly becomes real. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think we've seen that in various cases over and over again with prominent politicians. Well, and I would say, just in defense of conservatives, that there is there is Ronald Reagan's conservatism, which, in in a certain way, to co-opt a, a Republican phrase, was 
kinder and gentler than Donald Trump's. Now, Donald Trump is really not a conservative. Donald Trump is uh, a, a dangerous, autocratic uh, radical, basically. Um, he wants to be a dictator or a king. He, he is used to people doing what he says and being cushioned against uh, the actual consequences of what he does by his power and his white skin privilege and his male privilege and, you know, his big money privilege. Um, and, and so this is the problem. This is the difference between Ronald Reagan, who was, you know, a very conservative person, but I think actually empathetic human being, a, a nice person, quote unquote, who you would enjoy being around if you were around him. And Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a sociopath. Um, he cares not a bit for anyone other than himself. Everything that he does, you know, that he approaches, any issue he approaches is approached to the prism of what does this do for me? Um, and, you know, He's made clearly made a calculation that uh, um, his current approach, which is just to outright lie and deny reality, uh, is more effective for him personally and possibly getting him to reelection. Because make no make no uh, mistake, if he is reelected, uh, in large part it will be because he lies so much and. Um, his allies are so effective at suppressing the votes. Um, and uh, so there are plenty of conservatives who I, you know, I, you know, I am even conservative in certain ways. I want to conserve the world. You know, is that that's conservative. I'd rather not just trash it all, you know, because once the world's wrecked, then where do we live? You know, that seems like something worth conserving. Um I think one of the hopeful moment things is that there are people who are conservatives who are opposing uh, Trump um, because they understand that he is not their friend. Um, not enough. Not enough. Um, most of them seem to have sold out their soul, sold out their soul for you know power. You know, another Supreme Court seat. Conservative judge is on the. The uh, you know the federal court of appeals and so forth, but uh, I I do think again to not fall into what Trump does. I I want to humanize um, uh, and not demonize uh, categories of people um, because uh, you know partly where I'm from, it's a conservative place in many ways. But you know Sheridan County, Montana, but it is also a compassionate place in many ways. Uh, we might agree or disagree, but still, um, you know, look out for each other. And, and that's, that's a vision that, that I believe in. Um, and of course, that's the, the essence of We Are Family, the, the outreach and advocacy group that I work for, uh, and that my uh, wife co-directs and helped to co-found uh, 16 years ago, um, serving these exact population that's being decimated by the uh, coronavirus, low-income, non-white seniors. Just to to comment on a couple of things, uh, just to make sure I do before we um, yeah, wrap up talking about the Yeah, let's get back to Fugazi, the mighty Fugazi. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, to sh- just shout out a couple of of the components of the actual recording that I think are worth noting. Um, of course, this is it's it's early Fugazi. I think it's before Fugazi really got a sense of who they were in the recording studio. Um, really, probably before um, Don Ziantera really came into his own as an engineer. So they're they're all still finding themselves. Um, but they they still manage to do interesting things. I think in the beginning of this song, Ian's very gentle guitar. It almost sounds like a sounds like finger picking. Um, and yeah, he, he sort of introduces the song in a very gentle way. And it's it's nice. I think how the delayed entry of Joe's sort of slinky bassline is really nice. I I like songs that do that where the at least one component sort of waits a while to come in so you can you can feel the difference between what it sounds like with that component and without it. One thing I think is notable is I, I was listening to some live recordings of Give Me the Cure. There are a couple of small differences. One of them that jumps out to me is the line, I don't need a reason, is often emphasized in some way when Fugazi does it live. They'll say something like, guess what, I don't need a fucking reason, that sort of yeah. thing. Just to give that line a little more bite, that's not done on the record, although in a way it is because the beat sort of drops out, the drums and the bass cease at that point to to give that line a little bit more emphasis. So m- maybe it's a hint that to them it, it means something a little uh, uh, particularly weighty, which I guess I guess in the context of this is um, you know don't don't waste time looking for reasons for for whatever has happened or why I have this disease, what behaviors I've engaged in that have brought me to this point. Uh, let's focus on the important thing, which is the titular cure. Yeah. Well, I think that part of what that's referring to or nodding to is the judgment on, on people because, you know, I think the, the great power of the song is it brings you into that agony of what AIDS meant um, in a small, small way, uh, but a still a significant way. And, and you hear that person who was caught in this life and death struggle because that's exactly what it was at that time, um, trying to cut through like the cut through the ways that society at large is trying to minimize or compartmentalize what's happening here. And of course, for the person who is dying, there's no compartmentalization. This is your experience. It is your life. And, and so it is a way to like, it's kind of like a, like a punch in the face to all of us, frankly, who are not in that situation, um, to, to feel the situation, not like mess with it around in our head and get some intellectual understanding, but just to feel the agony the fear, the disintegration, um, and and in principle, then be motivated to to act. That's what I would say. Definitely, and a couple of other lines that are interesting to look at from the perspective of how they did it live. It seems like both before this song was released in the early recordings and sort of later on in their careers, Guy often sings slightly different lines. Um, there are sure. lines in his, in recordings like, I never thought that I'd be dying before. I never dreamt I'd be dying before, and now I feel like I'm dying. So that's different from the record. 
That's and that's from an early recording I was listening to. And sort of later there's one uh where he says I never walked with the dying. I never walked past the dying. So with those lyrics it's it can be the a song about the speaker himself dying or it can simply be I guess the experience that you know Guy and the guys in Fugazi actually had which is you know suddenly being confronted with this just because you are you are actually know people who are dying and and see them and and that's in that way it is a real part of your life in a way that for a lot of young people it isn't a lot of young people don't know anybody who is dying maybe have never talked with anybody who's dying um and then aids sort of changed all that and made it very real for a lot of people yeah and i think he would with some regularity change words in live performance uh again because he is he's trying to keep things fresh he's trying to strive for new levels of meaning at least for himself and uh and you know again if you're if you're singing these sorts of songs that are are you know i'm not saying that there aren't elements of fun in what fugaz does because of course there are but but there's a heaviness there that is um not unique to them but is um definitely one of their hallmarks you know this is there is a seriousness a weight to what they're doing and um i think there's nothing more disconcerting to someone who really does deeply care uh you know to be speaking the truth or 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 you know bringing your art to life in in a in a visceral way than to feel like you're just going through the motions and so i think that's one of the things you will see with the band in general throughout its history that they're constantly trying to find ways to keep this fresh for themselves and for their audience but beginning with themselves because you know there's no way to understand fugazi without understanding that first and foremost they're playing music that moves themselves the four members of the band that is their that's their intent from the beginning um and and you know the good news is they're demanding gifted people and if they satisfy themselves or get close to it they're likely to you know mode you know to touch others as well um but the, you know they're really there is a real focus to the band that is about the interplay of those four people as as any great band should um you, you can't it, 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 many bands that would be great sell themselves short by kind of going for the easy thing the thing that they know their audience will like um uh and you know maybe there's nothing wrong with that but i i i don't think that that was ever satisfactory for fugazi and i think you can see that in the way they they're uh, relentless in trying to uh stretch themselves and 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 by implication their their audience um they didn't never they never wanted to be uh, a museum piece which is why you will never see them reunite to perform unless there's something that happens for the four of them that makes them not only you know burn with the same intensity to be back together playing for people uh, out in the world um uh and you know the actual practical reality where they're all in the place where they can give themselves a hundred percent to it 
Um, because that's, that's, that was, I think one of the, it, any great band, you know, you, you have to give it everything. It's full on. Um, or, or maybe you should stop. Um, because I can't tell you how many bands I've seen diminish their legacy by not following that truism by like just kind of trotting, trotting out and, and, you know, making their fans happy for sure. And making some money, no doubt. But, uh, but are they adding anything to what they already did? And, and I think the answer often, and I, you know, I could talk for a while about some of the, the, uh, offenders here but it's not that important to do that you know one of the reasons why fugazi will mean everything to new generations of you know fans or listeners or whatever you want to call them is because they never did that when they couldn't do it full-on they stopped and that's i think a, a great you know, there's some great wisdom in that. Yeah, that's very true. I I, I have similar feelings uh, to you. I think, I think Ian and the rest of the bands are very smart and very um, aware of what you just said, and and completely understands how a legacy can be tarnished. I mean, like for God's sake, to to operate as long as they did under the self-imposed strictures that they did. It's sort of unthinkable to uh, imagine that they would compromise with some sort of um, half-assed reunion. So I I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean they've never they've never closed the door to it, and for a good reason, which is they don't let anybody tell them what they can or can't do. Right. Um, it's about what the four of them want to do, what feels right to them, and so if one person doesn't feel right about it, it's not going to happen. Um, that being said, that means it's unlikely that it will ever happen. Um, I mean, now it's a little more likely to could be a little more likely to happen for people who care about this because Guy and, um, and everyone but Guy are are in D.C. again. For a time, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Joe was in Italy and uh, Guy was in Brooklyn. Um and of course, Ian and uh, well, first, um, uh, Joe was playing with Brendan in Mesthetics, and now Joe is playing with Ian again in Kariki. So you know, there's definitely there's there's no ill will that keeps them from doing that. And quite frankly, I wouldn't doubt that they sometimes get together and play together just because they like to but that's for them for for them and right. and not for for the world because if you don't take care of that internal thing uh you don't have something really good to offer the world either i would say so anyway and i will say you know i i was feeling bad a little bit about going off so much about the current political situation um, but I can guarantee you that every member of Fugazi feels, if not exactly the same as me, the same general outrage about what's going on and a desire to see America turn a page uh, from the the ugly shit show of the last four years. Um, so it is, in fact, 
something that's on all of their minds and hearts. I know because I know all these people. We're still friends. We're still in touch. And, uh, you know, and they're still doing stuff. I mean, literally, um, Ian and uh, Joe, along with Amy Farina, of course, uh, and Kariki, just did a benefit concert with Positive Force right before the lockdown happened back in February 22nd at St. Stephen's, um, raising money for Thrive DC, this great group that um, serves, uh, you know, hungry people and tries to give homeless folks uh, a path back to stability and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and, and genuine human community, um, you know, to bring them back into the family, if you will. Um, so, uh, you know, the struggle continues. The fact that Fugazi is not playing um, doesn't prevent them from still acting out of that same spirit. Here, here. Let's, let's hope there uh, will be more shows like that to come uh, in due course and as soon as we get this thing figured out. Um, so as we start to wrap things up, something that we do on this podcast usually is ratings. where we try to figure out in the context, the grand context of the Fugazi catalog, how we feel about a particular song. So um, I'll ask you, Mark, if, if you're so inclined, a scale of one star to five stars, what do you think about Give Me the Cure? How much do you like it as a Fugazi song in the context of things? I mean, I'd say, I would say it's a five. I mean, and, and there are quite a number of Fugazi songs I would place at the, a five star level. Um, not all of them for sure. <laughs> um, but give me the cure again, my experience of it, um, both on record, but particularly live is it is, I mean, it's absolutely on target and the power of the song is immense. Um, it is, you, in one sense you look at it and it's like very simple. I remember as I was thinking about this before, I was like, you know, give me the shot, give me the cure, give me the pill, give me the cure. It's like, well, it's very, very simple in that sense. But it's, it, it does it have to be fancy? It, it, it is cutting right to the heart of the thing. And the same thing with the, the poetic imagery, you know, walking with the dying, lick the side of dying and, you know, all of these things. It is, it, it is, it is a song that if you allow it to, can change your life for the better. Um, I, I'm sure that if that is a heavy weight for any band to carry, a high uh, target to aim for, for any artist. Um, but of course, isn't that why so many people love Fugazi, loved them then and, and still love them now. I mean, it's uh, hysterical for me to think about it, that um, it is actually, the band was together a long time, you know, like over 15 years um, and undiminished in their power in, in so many ways. The context changed around them. So definitely things meant a little bit differently at certain points. And, you know, we could talk a long time about what's more moving to us or or less moving, but I don't, you know, I don't think you can question that the intensity, the, the you know, the, the heart, uh, the, the, the fierce burning intelligence, uh, or, or, you know, compassion that drove, drove the band ever flagged. Um, 
Having said that, you know, and that seems like such a long time. I remember at the time thinking, my God, you know, there'll be a time when this is done. Fugazi is over. And, and it, especially in the context of DC where bands, you know, a couple of the most important bands to come out of DC didn't last more than like six months, you know, like mm-hmm. embrace one last wish. My God, Fugazi lived and breathed undiminished for 15 years plus. That's such a, an accomplishment. Hard but now it's, more, really. it's yeah. over. It's more than that since they last played a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, time has, has certainly moved on, but, um, I think, um, why people still care is because there is this sense that they were striving for something, uh, beyond the typical. And it is a window into, I hope, the struggles each of us have and our willingness or lack thereof to challenge ourselves to rise towards the best that we can be on whatever level, you know, it, it may be just as a person, maybe as a creative force or maybe as a parent or, or whatever we're doing. Um, but that, that, when I hear a song like Give Me the Cure, it helps me believe in a better world that can be and a better person that I can be. And, uh, you know, obviously that's why I dedicated so much of myself to the collaboration with them during those many years. But it's also why, um, it still carries me at different points because everything that was done, all the songs that were written, all the shows that were played, all the interviews that were done, you know, it still matters. It's still as real as it ever was. And Fugazi, in my experience, always made it real. Very true. Yeah. I, I think for me, there's like so much truth in what you said. Um, yeah, I, I think from my point of view, I'd say Give Me the Cure is is like a four star. Um, it's it's not one of my most absolute favorites, but the, the power of the song is so much more than what's on the record. As you say, like not only as a live song um, where they really put so much into it. Um, I mean, all of them, but particularly Guy uh, in his, you know, some of his trademark um, passionate dramatic performances. But even beyond that, just as as the idea of a song, it it's it really crystallizes the activist side of Fugazi as a band, how much they cared, and how many bands would really use their platform to write a song about AIDS like this, um, which I don't know exactly how personal it was to to any of them, um, how if they had close family who was affected by AIDS. But, you know, regardless of that, it shows the kind of the empathy, the kind of caring they had. And it's the kind of song that that makes you proud to be a Fugazi fan, proud of them um, and, and just happy uh, that they existed. So, yeah, there's there's so much great about it as a song um, and as a as a symbol almost in itself as as a huge part of who Fugazi was as a band. So I really value it 
uh, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, the way I would put it is if I were to go through their all their records and I was to make a, uh, you know, a single disc. So that would be most other songs are, you know, say average of three minutes or so. So you're probably talking about 20 to 25 songs. This would certainly be one of those. Um, and uh, again, you know, th- there are a, a score of Fugazi songs like this one. Um, where I remember exactly where I was and what I was feeling when I first heard this song. And it never left me. Um, you know, uh, Burning 2 is another example. Um, and the same uh, suggestion. Um, what would be some other ones? Um, uh, I can't believe I'm spacing on the name of... Uh, you seem you lean toward the earlier ones. I'm guessing, in, like, yeah, but there are also ones. later ones. Um, like uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the song, the uh, anti gentrification one. Oh, cash out, uh, cash out. I mean, again, I remember being at Sacred Heart Church and hearing them play for the first time in a neighborhood that was gentrifying, that was so significant to the DC punk world that we had participated in some sense in that gentrification to some degree we had also helped to fight against it in other ways um and uh um i mean it definitely was a situation where i would hear these songs at the you know at the very beginning it was like every time i saw them play i was like there's another incredible song um the word was another word was another great one that i loved from the very beginning um you know, repeater. Oh my God. Uh, and, uh, because that's right in the middle of the drug war, um, the murder crisis when we, DC became the murder capital of America. So, um, so well, I guess what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, Fugazi has some incredible, incredible songs. Um, and, uh, uh, and I, I rank this one up there with them it would be on that you know my definitive fugazi cd fantastic well um to wrap things up a little mark anderson i i wanted to thank you so much for appearing on this podcast you know you're of course back when i started one of the first people that i thought of uh would be a great person to come on and, and just talk about fugazi uh given your work with them and you know you it certainly has been a great conversation so thanks for that Thanks for all your work over the years, and I'd like to give you a chance to do some plugs. You know, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes to basically all all your stuff I can find. I know you have um, a fascinating book about The Clash. There's, there's a documentary about Positive Force called Positive Force More Than a Witness, um, etc., etc. So I'll put links to everything I can find, but... Are there any th- particular things that you'd like to um, tell our listeners to get involved in something, point them to some sort of cause or other? I mean, I mean, basically, wherever you are, there's something to do. Um, I can't tell you what that is because I'm not there. I'm not you. Um, but for me, punk has always been about doing whatever you can, wherever you are, with whatever you got right now. So just go do that. Um, you know, for me, the center of my life now um, is the the group We Are Family and my own family. I have a ten year old and I have a seven year old, and I'm I'm trying to be a trying to be a good dad to them because um, that is 
know, there's no higher calling as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, you know, so if that's what you're, you're doing in your life, then, then do it, do it a hundred percent, do it full on, just like Fugazi did, um, and, and does in their own way still. Um, I, I, you know, the group, we are family. If you're in the DC area, we can always use your help. We serve almost a thousand seniors every month with grocery bags, you know, phone calls, um, all sorts of other kinds of assistance that has become even more intense and necessary during this time of, uh, you know, pandemic. Um, it's not only a way to, you know, give something back to the community, to take care of folks who have, you know, objectively been the folks who built our communities. Um, but it's a way to learn about that community and to, to step across the boundaries that so often divide us, things like race and class and sexual orientation and, you know, nation of origin or even language, um, to, you know, to discover a simple but revolutionary truth. We're sisters and brothers in one family. And, and, you know, we got to take care of each other, you know, so simple, so difficult, but so transformational if we take it seriously. Um, we got everything we need to take care of each other. Uh, all that's left is for us to have the heart to go make it happen. Beautiful, inspirational. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Mark Anderson, everybody. I don't have much to add other than that um, you can reach me, as always, at FugaziA2Z at gmail.com. You can join the conversation around this podcast uh, at our Facebook group called The Alphabetical Fugazi. And otherwise, I just hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Glue Man. Until then, keep your eyes open. 